let's just look at this Congress. What has been accomplished in the Senate? Absolutely nothing except approving judges. Absolutely nothing. You, you can't come up with 10 amendments that were voted on because the leader does not allow amendments. I just don't see how we can do anything other than recognize reality, not what we would like it to be, but reality. Is abolishing the legislative filibuster necessary in order for Congress to pass meaningful climate legislation? A handful of Democratic presidential candidates have called for throwing out the Senate rule, claiming that it exacerbates gridlock in Washington, D.C. Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid also believes that abolishing the filibuster is critical to passing legislation and tackling the most important issues facing the United States today, including climate change. But could ending the filibuster end up making U.S. politics even more volatile? We discuss with Senator Reid himself on this week's episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And I've got Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, here with me in Los Angeles. Brandon is a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. Brandon, I know you're also gearing up for this ridiculously long overnight relay race. So quickly tell us about what that is all about. So speaking of Obama, uh, 12 of uh, some of my best friends, these are like Obama OGs, like heroes, legends. Uh, uh, we, are, we are raising money for cancer. So it's a good cause. And we're running across Oregon. It's a relay race. So it's, it's called Hood to Coast. And we run from uh, Mount Hood all the way to the ocean, which is 200 miles. So essentially, we're all in this van. You hop out. You run seven miles. Next guy runs seven miles. As I said before on this podcast, I'll be running real fast because there's some of these guys in Oregon who are coming after uh, climate activists. You know, oh, And they're threatening <laughs> with weapons. So <laughs> I'll be keeping my eye out and I'll be running real fast out there. Oh. Goodness. <laughs> but if you want to contribute, if you hate cancer, you know, we'll tweet out the link uh, for fundraising. And, um, you know, we lost this year uh, as part of our Obama family. Michael Robertson uh, is just a, an amazing uh, guy and uh, died way too young with, with, with a little boy uh, and a wife that he left behind. So we'll be extra motivated this year. Man, I... I mean, I don't even know how to follow that up. Of course, we've talked about this before, Brandon, but again, always so sorry to, to hear about uh, Michael and, and what his family's going through. I was going to make a joke, which doesn't seem like the right thing to do now, but I was going to say, you know, uh, I understand what you're about to go through with this run. I had to play tennis for like three hours on Sunday, and then I had to run up to the bar to, to get a beer because I was so dehydrated and stressed out from that arduous activity. So I, I hear you. I feel you. I'm rooting for you. It sounds like it's going to be a good workout. We'll be drinking some beers after the run and maybe in the van uh, when we get close to the finish. <laughs> but not the driver of the van, to be clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that other voice you heard on the line there is Shane Skelton, our podcast Republican. He is a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Congressman Paul Ryan. So today we're tackling an issue I know is near and dear to both of you. Uh, that is the Senate rule called the filibuster. So let's get to it. It'll take more than electing a green-minded president for the U.S. to start taking dramatic action on climate change, according to several top Democrats. They say it will also require doing away with the Senate rule called the filibuster. 
The filibuster allows a minority of senators to delay or block a vote on a bill by holding an unlimited debate. That is, unless at least 60 senators agree to end it. So that effectively means that 60 votes, rather than a simple majority, are needed to pass most pieces of legislation. As a result, at least some bipartisan cooperation is usually needed to get anything done. But many Americans believe that the days of cooperation are over, at least for now. And they blame the filibuster for enabling the toxic gridlock we see in D.C. today. The modern filibuster was created in 1917 and use was relatively rare at the outset, but it has ticked up significantly over time. That's due in part to the fact that filibustering has become a lot easier. In 1975, the Senate tweaked the rules so that other business could be conducted while the filibuster is technically underway. And senators no longer have to literally stand on the Senate floor in order to halt legislation. Flash forward to 2019, and several top Democrats are calling for an end to the filibuster altogether, including former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Reid spent three decades in Congress, including as the Democratic Senator from Nevada. He served as Senate Majority Leader from 2007 to 2015 and ushered in critical legislation like the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the Affordable Care Act, and Dodd-Frank. In 2013, he was responsible for eliminating the filibuster to pass most presidential nominations, including federal court and cabinet positions. In Reid's view, this was the only way to approve President Obama's picks for these roles, who faced vigorous opposition from Republicans. Four years later, Mitch McConnell, a Republican and current majority leader in the Senate, got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in order to confirm President Trump's first Supreme Court pick, Neil Gorsuch. In a game of political ping pong, Reid now believes that eliminating the lingering legislative filibuster is necessary to pass critical laws in the face of ongoing Republican obstruction, particularly when it comes to climate change, which he wrote about recently in an op-ed for The New York Times. Reid isn't alone. Presidential hopefuls Elizabeth Warren, Jay Inslee, and Steve Bullock have also called for abolishing the filibuster and doing away with the 60-vote requirement. Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders, and a few others, have said that they're open to reforming the filibuster but have yet to fully endorse abolishing it. Political Climate spoke with Senator Reid about his views on the filibuster and how it's hindering climate action. We also discussed the Green New Deal and whether or not he sees hyperpartisanship subsiding in the United States anytime soon. So without further delay, here is that interview. So, Senator, you wrote recently in The New York Times that the Democrats must abolish the filibuster to, quote, save our country's future. You referenced that America is not leading on climate change, which is one of the reasons uh, you called for ending the filibuster. A lot of Americans are indeed frustrated with the gridlock in Washington, D.C. today. But getting rid of the filibuster arguably comes with some political risk. So please walk us through your reasoning for for calling for the end to the filibuster right now. Well, I'm not an expert on all government, but I know quite a bit about the Senate. Um, Lyndon Johnson was the leader for six years. I was the leader for about twice that. And during his first six years, he had overcome two filibusters. During my first six years, I had overcome more than 100. And then it got into several hundred and hundreds and hundreds of filibusters. So the filibuster came about in 1917 as a way to make the Senate more um, willing to get things done. 
Uh, but the point is that over these years since it's been in effect, collegiality is no longer in the Senate. The 60 vote threshold has become the threshold, not 50, but 60. It's not fair, we're a democracy. And right now the Senate, there just nothing ever gets done. All they've been doing this past year, year and a half is just uh, judges, nothing else. There are no amendments offered, nothing happens there. So I believe that it's not a question if the filibuster is gonna be gone, it's only a question when it's gonna be gone because the Senate can no longer afford to have this false 60-vote threshold. And uh, it's not the end of the Senate. The Senate would still have six-year terms. It's a bicameral legislature. It would still give the Senate the ability to slow down House legislation because their terms are two years, Senates are six. So I think that, uh, I repeat, filibuster is gone. It's only a question of when it's gone. Senator, this is Brandon Hurlbut. Uh, when I was in the Obama administration uh, as chief of staff at the DOE, in one of the meetings uh, we had with Vice President Biden, uh, I asked him if he supported getting rid of the filibuster. This was back in like 2012. And he uh, did not agree with that uh, at the time. We have several candidates that agree with you and want to get rid of the filibuster and some of them that don't, how much of this will be a factor in your decision on who to support in the Democratic primary, whether they support the filibuster or not, and um, also their, um, you know, how much they're prioritizing climate? The filibuster is not going to be uh, determinative to me as to who I support for president. I think anyone that thinks the filibuster is going to be here in the future they're living in the past because it's just simply not working anymore. Climate change is something we have to address. It is the most important thing to the world, period. There's no close second. We have to do something to address climate change. I've seen it here in my own deserts in Nevada. It's, the climate has already started to change. We have these ravaging wildfires we never had before. So there's so many things that we see that's already being affected and the worst is yet to come. We don't have much leeway. We have to do something sooner rather than later to address climate change. And I have a number of disagreements with the Trump administration, but certainly, certainly, anyone that doesn't believe that climate change is taking place is living in a dream world. Senator, this is Shane Skelton. I actually worked on the House side for Paul Ryan in November 2013 when you eliminated the filibuster for uh, certain judicial nominations, obviously non-Supreme Court and other uh, executive branch nominees. And my question initially is, feeling how you feel now, what, what stopped you short then? What has changed between 2013 and 2019 that's made it very clear to you that this is an action that needs to take place now but didn't give you that same motivation back then? Well, let's go back and look where we were uh, when that took place. Obama had just been elected president, very popular president. This was his first Congress, and they were filibustering, they, the Republicans, everything. They were filibustering even the Secretary of Defense. We had over 100 vacancies in the judiciary. 
we had the DC circuit. We had four or five vacancies there. The second most important court in the land. The Republicans couldn't attack organized labor head on. So they decided what they would do is weaken the National Labor Relations Board so it was meaningless. And they did a good job. We couldn't get a quorum there. So in short, had we not done the rule change then, and keep in mind the rules had been changed in the Senate numerous times. This wasn't the first time they'd been changed. If we hadn't changed the rules at that time, Obama's presidency would have been really not much. But his trademark, and we'll go down in history as to what happened that first Congress he had, it, it goes down as the most successful Congress in the history of the country, even more so than Roosevelt's first Congress. Think of the things we got done. Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, National Service. We just did so many good things that would never have happened but for the fact that we changed the rules in the Senate. So in hindsight, we did it. We filled the D.C. Circuit. We proved over 100 judges. We uh, were able to take care of all the cabinet and sub-cabinet positions. We took care of the National Labor Relations Board. It was something that was extremely important for the country. Moving forward now, I think it's, it's easy to argue that there's probably no one on earth that understands the Senate and the Senate rules better than you do. Um, for those of us who, who are just sort of unsure about what it would mean to remove the legislative filibuster, can you give us a sense of why we shouldn't be concerned about legislative whiplash? Like, What if, what if a Republican you know, had the House, Senate, and the White House and took the health care system apart, and then you know, we sort of flipped two or one or two election cycles later? Would the economy ever to be able to get on track and have any certainty if it was, more, if it was easier to pass major le- legislation through the Senate like it is in the House? We cannot go back. It's just not going to work. The Senate now doesn't do anything anyway. No amendments are offered because the leader won't allow them to be offered. I repeat, all they're doing is approving judges. And I think that we have to recognize that we have to move forward. Now, it's not the end of the world that the Senate would be directed by a majority vote. By It would be a little democracy, just like we have in the House. And that's not bad. We have to change. Our country has to change with the times. The time has come. The legislative filibuster doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I, I, just to clarify that, that last point, so you don't think it would be destructive if the Senate were more like the House? Because working in the House, I, I saw what happened when the Freedom Caucus got big enough to hold everything hostage, and that was on our own side. And I'm worried that the House is, is spinning out of control a little bit more than even when I was there not very long ago. And so my concern with the fil- removing the filibuster would be that the Senate would become more like the House, which, which actually concerns me, but it sounds like you're not as worried about it. I served in the House. The House has always been the same. And what I mean by that is it's like the British Parliament. The party in control determines what's going to happen in the House. It's always been that way. It'll continue to be that way. And if there's infighting among the party in charge, that's just one of the things we have to face. That's the way it is. And so I do believe that the country would be better off having the 
six-year term Senate having a majority vote because I repeat now for the third time, there is nothing happening in the Senate today. That's why we're having trouble getting people to run for the Senate because it's just not the debating society it used to be. The greatest deliberative body in the world, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, that isn't the way it is anymore. And we have to recognize that and change with the times. Senator, this is Brandon again. Um, would you support uh, something short of abolishing the filibuster, something like where they have to talk uh, the entire time, as you referenced, and, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, or does it have to be a complete abolishment of the filibuster? I, I've heard this before, and it's, it's a good idea, but I don't know how you could enforce it. I do not know how you could enforce it. Uh, the rules of the Senate would have to be changed. I just don't think you could ever get it done. You can't force somebody to stand and talk. And if they have people who are willing to help them, um, and it, just, it just is something that is a figment of someone's imagination. It cannot work in the Senate, forcing people to talk. Senator, you know, some people would say that the benefit of the filibuster is that it at least tried to promote some level of bipartisan buy-in. And without that, you end up with embattled initiatives like the Affordable Care Act, where Republicans felt free to undermine it because none of them voted for it. So I guess, how do you get past the broader partisanship of today? Whether it is changing the filibuster, it sounds like you believe that will happen regardless. But how do you just get beyond this? I think a lot of people are frustrated. Uh, so what is your vision for the future? Are we stuck in this partisan moment or is there a path beyond that? I think the only way to get past this partisan moment is to realize we're in a partisan moment and move on. And this Senate is not going to be the way it used to be when I came to the Senate or frankly when I left the Senate. When I left the Senate, things had already started to turn to the dark side, and I just think that we cannot have a Senate that works the way it has the last couple of Congresses. Let's just look at this Congress. What has been accomplished in the Senate? Absolutely nothing except approving judges. Absolutely nothing. You, you can't come up with 10 amendments that were voted on because the leader does not allow amendments. I just don't see how we can do anything other than recognize reality, not what we would like it to be, but reality. Is it not possible, though, that past rule changes in the Senate have led to this moment where we're not seeing anything get done but judges being passed? You know, it's in a culmination of a, a back and forth. Some people will go back 20, 40 years looking at the way, you know, the parties have grown further apart. So, are not things like rule changes accelerating or at least intensifying the partisanship and removing the filibuster would add just another layer to that? Rules have changed in the Senate numerous times over the, over the years. That's where the filibuster came from to begin with. The Senate thought they would have a better way of operating if they could shut off debate. And that was the purpose of the filibuster. But right now, everyone that's watched the Senate in recent years 60 votes has become the thing. That is the vote. It's not a simple majority vote. You know, we, I look back with nostalgia 
his salt ban. Um, that was debated. It was offered by Feinstein. There was no filibuster. It passed by 52 votes, as I recall. Clarence Thomas, I didn't vote for him. Uh, I don't know how many votes he got, uh, but 53, I don't really know the exact number, less than 55. But there was no filibuster. That isn't how we did things. But things have changed, and we have to recognize the changes have taken place. We're never going to go back to um, having a situation like we had on the assault weapons ban or on Supreme Court nominations. Because that, that was path was made pretty clear when McConnell sat on a Supreme Court nomination for more almost a year. Never been done even close in the history of the country. But that set the pattern and that's where we are now. Senator, this is Brandon again. Um, one of the things I most admire about you is uh, you were a boxer. Uh, and I boxed. I was sparring uh, earlier this morning. Uh, so I'm going to throw you a little jab here. So get ready. You said your support for a presidential candidate uh, will not turn on you know, their, whether they want to abolish the uh, filibuster or not. You also said that climate is, uh, you know, should be a top priority issue. So for some of these candidates that are running for president that are promising aggressive action on climate but are not willing to abolish the filibuster, are they just dreaming? Is that issuing a, like false hope to people? Yep, they're dreaming. It's uh, simply with the filibuster, there will be nothing done on climate change. It just, uh, you know, but we, that's not going to be fit, how you. That's in, not going to determine future, your support. Nothing's going to happen, and I don't think we have the luxury of waiting for three, two or three more Congresses till we become less uh, tribal. I guess is the right word. Senator, this is Shane again. I have a question I've wanted to ask for a long time, so I'm guessing our audience wants to know the answer too. If you could do it all over again in 2013. Would you have abolished the filibuster entirely and completely, or was it what occurred between then and 2019 that brought you to the point that you are now, where now you think it needs to be eliminated moving forward, uh, the legislative filibuster? First of all, I couldn't have gotten the votes to do it. Um, so that's number one. I didn't, it was not the time to do it. It was the time to make the changes we did, which was minimal, but it was significant. And we've seen what's happened since then with the lockdown of the Senate under the Republicans controlling the Senate. It's been not good at all for the country and, frankly, not very good for the world. Senator, one thing we've talked a lot about on this podcast is the Green New Deal and the future of climate change policy in America, specifically at the federal level, where, as we know, there's a lot of gridlock. What are your thoughts on the path forward for climate legislation? Do you see something like the Green New Deal being successful? Well, the Green New Deal, I think it's a, conceptually, it sounds good. But if you read it, it's really uh, something that won't happen. It's just too, too, uh, What's the right word? It just, it's too theoretical. It won't happen. You have to do something that's realistic. And there are things that can be done that are realistic in nature. We have so many things that are just waiting for us to happen. We have to do something about coal. We have to do something about renewable energy. We have to do something to make sure that people have incentives to do the things that need to be done with uh, 
climate. And I think the time is ripe to do that. It won't happen during this next, uh, during Trump's time, because he, he doesn't acknowledge that there's anything going on with climate. I saw a statement today by Mitt Romney, Senator from Utah, who went into some length talking to a conservative group saying that he believes that climate has been affected by man. That was a, he was talking to a conservative group. It took a lot of courage for him to say that, but it's true. Do you have any hope for a bipartisan support on climate legislation? That's something that we talk about a lot and, you know, kind of spawned this podcast, to be honest. So what is your prognosis on that? Do Democrats have to win it all to get anything done? Or do you think that there's a way well, let, to work hope, together? Let's hope not. Let's hope that the American people's voices are being heard. Maybe it'll be better than the 90% support we have for background checks on guns. Congress does nothing on that. Uh, the support for doing something about climate is not as high as doing something about background checks, but it's pretty strong. Let's hope, and I do hope, that some Republicans will get the message and be willing to move away from their um, leader, Trump, and get something done. Democrats are waiting with open arms for some brave Republicans to step out. They should do that. Their constituents want it done, and uh, they shouldn't be afraid of Trump. They should just do it. Senator, on that note, do you think that the reluctance from Republicans, at least the ones that you've worked with um, that are still in office, my sense is that it's really the media and and, and certain uh, certain you know funding mechanisms within the Republican Party that they're afraid of. But I get the sense that a lot of these individuals would actually be amenable to some realistic policy if they weren't so scared to talk about it publicly. You mentioned Senator Romney just did. Do you think the opposition is is fundamental with these senators and representatives, or do you think it's a matter of political convenience? I think the Republicans have been uh, programmed in recent years to be afraid of having a primary. And I think a lot of this has been their fear of Trump getting involved in a Republican primary. But I think that there are enough Republicans out there who know the right thing to do would be to do something about climate. Not change the world, but some really significant changes that would be helpful. And you asked me earlier, do I think this is going to happen? I hope it's going to happen. I haven't given up on it yet. I think we'll leave it there, Senator. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, Senator. Thank you, Senator. Anytime. Thank you very much, you guys. Brandon and Shane, I'm curious to know what you made of Reed's comments. Uh, was was that what you expected from him? I mean, first of all, it was just awesome having him on the line. Like I, I can speak in front of hundreds or thousands of people if I'm invited to do so and have absolutely no nerves whatsoever. Like my hands were shaking the entire time. I don't know how um, you know how much our audience knows about Senator Reed or how much historical sort of context some of our listeners have, but he was a titan. I mean, that guy had iron fist style power. And that's when I was working in the house. And so he talks a little bit in the interview, as you guys all heard about Mitch McConnell and how he doesn't let amendments get offered and all those sorts of things. Uh, Maybe that's true. But Harry Reid ruled that Senate in a way that I've never seen before. And I've been scared of him ever since. So having him on the phone was a complete treat. But also my nerves never calmed throughout the 25 minutes. They never settled at any point, which was actually kind of uh, kind of fun for me and thrilling at the same time. 
Yeah, political celebrity for sure. Yeah, right before we started the interview, I sent around a BuzzFeed news article from a couple years ago that had like seven reasons Harry Reid is a badass. And one of them was that the town he was raised in had no high school, so Reid hitchhiked 60 miles per week to the town with the nearest school, which is like amazing. But I did, you know, one of the things... This is so nerdy that I have been passionate about for many years is the filibuster. Um, I wrote my law school paper about it to John Podesta, who many of you may know is the former chief of staff to um, Bill Clinton, a senior advisor to President Obama, and you know raised this question, uh, you know, with Vice President Biden in, in a White House meeting. Um, and I agree with Senator Reid. Uh, I was a little bit. Uh, surprised that it will not affect his vote for who he or who he endorses in the primary, because if he cares so much about getting rid of the filibuster and it's preventing all of these big, you know, uh, policy solutions that we need, especially climate, then why wouldn't that be the number one factor in your you know, determination for who you support? It will be the biggest factor for me. Well, Brandon, though, he also did say in a vice interview that he doesn't agree with um, single-payer health care. He doesn't agree with decriminalizing border crossings. And so, you know, if he's looking at all these issues, he might think that getting rid of the, the filibuster is a good idea. But if the person promoting that idea is also someone who promotes those other ideas and, and likely can't beat Donald Trump, maybe he wants to reserve his judgment and, and put himself in a position where he can support a candidate that he thinks is right on the issues. I can't speak for him at all. I'm just looking at that Vice article and looking what he said to us. And, and those things would, would seem consistent in my mind. I feel like it also might have to do with the fact that it would effectively mean he was picking Elizabeth Warren, because as far as I know, she's the only serious contender at this point who's called for an end to the filibuster. Uh, Jay Inslee's talked about it a lot, but he doesn't have the polling numbers that he needs at this point, at least, to advance to the next round of Democratic debates. So, you know, we might just not be ready to announce who he's picking, in effect. Getting down to the substance of this a little bit, too, you know, I'd asked him a couple times in a couple different ways are you concerned about legislative whiplash? In other words, if every two years or four years we elect a new president, and if you know the House and Senate carry in certain ways, and we have seen uniform Democrat control and uniform Republican control in the last decade, so it's not that unthinkable, um, what if you pass an entirely new healthcare system? And that maybe takes four to six years to even get off the ground, and two years later, it's repealed and replaced with something else. Or you know, a tax code doesn't allow business to, to have certainty. And I was curious what he'd say about that, and his response was pretty much, Look, this is just where we're going. Um, we're in a, we're in a place right now where the will of the majority is almost never uh, is almost never implemented because of the filibuster. But he seemed to say several times, "This is just the direction things are going." And I understand that, and I'm actually one who likes to deal with reality rather than the way we wish things were. But I get a little bit nervous. Uh, populism is not always a great thing, and the idea of just hey, this is the way things are going, so so let it go. That doesn't check those boxes for me on how you make sure that we have a rational system of governance moving forward. I have a few thoughts on that. Number one, I think the system is designed with appropriate checks and balances. I mean, you would have to get a majority of the Senate and then also a majority of the House and the president to push something through. So even if you just have 51 votes in the Senate, you still have to have the House and the presidency to enact, you know, uh, big change in legislation. But, but let me jump on you for that, Brandon, because Republicans, you know, have had the House since 2010 until 2018. They took the Senate in 2014. President Trump won in 2016. If they enacted the Republican agenda, which, by the way, I very much support, as you know, but if they had enacted a very robust Republican agenda with the House majority, the Senate majority and President Trump, 
I honestly don't think that you would look at look at those uh, those programs are being implemented and say, yep, this is exactly what America wants. It's exactly what America needs. And I'm glad they did this. I mean, I think in that scenario, at least you have to be happy that there was a little bit more of a deliberative process, though. I personally selfishly would have liked to, to run roughshod over the Democrats. I'm also well aware that the tables will turn at some point and I don't want to be run roughshod over. Yeah, there's a podcast series right now being done by Embedded by NPR talking about the history of the Supreme Court and how it became so politicized. And they point to removing the filibuster, something the Democrats did uh, under Harry Reid uh, for approving judges in lower courts. And even other Democrats pointed back to that, saying that was a mistake. We now have made the Supreme Court the law of the land potentially so politicized we can never recover. And so people kind of lose they forget history, it seems like. And I actually don't know what the answer is to any of this, but it certainly feels like people are responding to a moment right now, maybe not putting it in context. Yeah, I, I think I totally disagree with that podcast. I mean, um, you know, the consequences of Harry Reid's decision for the Supreme Court now, yes, that is a problem for us. Uh, and what Shane is saying, uh, you know, is true. But what if we had had if we didn't have the filibuster when Obama was elected president, we could have pushed through his entire agenda and then we would have had success with that and run on that. I would have liked to have seen that world because what we have right now is Democrats promise all these you know, things and then it gets into uh, the Senate and we need this crazy 60 votes, which you know is almost impossible to get. And then it doesn't happen. And then people are disappointed. And then they blame Democrats because they don't understand the system. People, the average voter does not understand what a filibuster is. They don't know any of this. They don't know anything about the process. So they just say, oh, you didn't make it happen. And now, you know, Republicans thrive on that. They run on, oh, government's not working. Democrats don't know what they're doing, you know. And so what I would like to see is a chance for Democrats to win the House, win the presidency, get a majority in the Senate, and actually implement our vision and see where that goes. And if it doesn't work and Republicans want to run against that, let's have that debate. So I have two last comments on, on this. One is what I really did appreciate about having Senator Reid on, and I honestly don't think any other guest could have, could have done this as credibly as he did, is he did point out I mean, I think a lot of people think the filibuster is like constitutionally enshrined. It's not. He pointed out this is a Senate rule. We change Senate rules all the time, several times uh, every year. I don't think he said several times every year, but but I think he made the point that Senate rules are constantly changed. And this is a Senate rule. It's not constitutionally enshrined. So I do think it's important for people to understand that we're not changing America here. If people do remove uh, the legislative filibuster, they're just modifying Senate rules, which is something they've always had the right to do. But the other piece of it is, Brandon, Getting into the climate you know, debate, which is sort of what we do here, I think that we would be so far from anything productive. Now, I know that what you're going to say and what everyone else is saying is we can't possibly tackle climate change. Senator Reid said this with the filibuster in place. But what I worry about is if we actually finally get somewhere, and I, and I, I know what the pushback is going to be, but if we get somewhere, maybe a carbon tax, maybe some sort of you know, advanced uh, energy R&D program, stuff that can really get us where we want to go, and it gets a bipartisan vote, we're going to be able to move forward with that plan. And climate change is not a problem that we're going to solve tomorrow. It's going to take a commitment of, of several decades. And so what I worry about is, let's say, for example, you had 51 votes in the Senate, you had the White House, you had the House, and you passed you know, something that, that looks like the Green New Deal. Republicans are going to be chomping at the bit to dismantle it, and they're going to get the opportunity to do it because, uh, because the voters aren't going to stand for it. And, and on the flip side of that, uh, I don't think Republicans would do really anything productive with unified control of government on climate, even though I think they do a ton of other productive things. So I just think the challenges that have very long lead times for solutions 
really need to be forged through bipartisan compromise. I know I'm a broken record on that, but I think getting rid of the filibuster gets us further from implementation, not closer. We'll see if the voters, uh, how they react to the Green New Deal. Let's let's try that experiment. I would love uh, to see that. I, you know, the few, I mean, the reasons why I'm so passionate about this stupid thing called the filibuster, it gets to the heart of our democracy. And I actually think um, the filibuster is making us more polarized because there is, I think, real consensus on many of the issues that we're fighting about. If you look at these things like um, gun control and assault weapons, background checks, there's you know, 70, 80, 90 percent support, you know, for those type of things. Uh, a vast majority of this country wants to act on climate. Uh, if you talk about abortion, people want it to be safe, legal and rare. You know, that's an overwhelming majority. So as you said earlier, Shane, our political system is not reflecting the will of the people. And here's just, you know, a few things to think about. Right now, the Democrats are in the minority in the Senate, but the Democrats represent 40 million more people than the Republicans. That seems pretty perverse to me. And, and the founding fathers, when they set this up with the Senate for certain reasons, you know, Virginia had 747,610 people. Delaware had 59,094 people. That's 12 times the population. So, so in Delaware, their vote was like 12 times more powerful than the people in Virginia. Well, now with but California- But that was by intent, correct? I mean, that was what intent. they intended to do. Exactly. But in California now, we have 40 million people. And Wyoming has 600,000. So it's now 67 times, the people of Wyoming have 67 times more power, you know, when it comes to their voting than we do in California. That seems completely perverse to me, and it's going to get worse. In 2040, half of this country will live in eight states. But that means they get 16 senators. Let me cut senators, you off really quick, though, and I want to hear that point about the eight states, but your math is wrong because they also apportion congressional seats based on population to counterbalance that. So. That, you know, seven to one ratio versus 40 to one ratio is not correct because California has like 53 or 55 House seats, whereas Wyoming has one. So they put those mechanisms oh, in yeah, place. But so then when you gerrymander them, <laughs> Let's see, you know, when, when in Pennsylvania, you know, there's more people voted for Democrats for Congress than Republicans. And then you have more Republican congressmen. And like, come on, the, like, gerrymandering has been used. The Senate, the Electoral College, all of these things to thwart. A majority view. From you, you and I would agree that redistricting reform is, is widely needed and, and wildly appropriate. I'm just saying you were talking about a strict math problem and the House was meant to counteract that math and make sure that the representation scale slid sort of evenly. Sure. But I'm sure the founding fathers were OK with like a 12 X difference. I doubt they were they were OK with a 67 X difference. So I guess, Brandon, you don't believe at all that there was a mistake on the Democratic side in in getting rid of the filibuster initially in 2013 for nominations. You think that 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 didn't accelerate partisanship in your view? Well, look, it opened the door uh, for Mitch McConnell to take away the filibuster on Supreme Court nominations. And now, you know, we got Brett Kavanaugh from that. And because he stole a seat by not letting, you know, by not taking a vote on Merrick Garland, um, Obama's nominee, you know, for the Supreme Court, we now have a more conservative court than reflects the will of, of the people. So that the consequence was bad. But overall, what he was trying to do um, was really important, because what I think maybe our listeners don't understand is that, you know, the Senate votes on personnel for the administration. If you want to be uh, a political appointee, you know, an assistant secretary of a cabinet agency, an undersecretary, a deputy secretary, you know, they vote on your uh, nomination. And these personnel 
um, they serve as sort of like vice presidents of a corporation. If you think about the Department of Energy, where I worked, had a $30 billion budget. That's like a major corporation. And so each of these uh, political appointees that the Senate has to vote on essentially serve as like vice presidents and senior vice presidents of a corporation. Now, imagine trying to run a corporation of that size with no senior vice presidents or vice presidents. It's almost possible. That would never happen in the business world. We would never say to, you know, IBM or Google or Amazon or whatever, try to run your company without a bunch of vice presidents, right? So that is what was happening is that the nominations were blocked and we couldn't get our personnel through. And, and the reason they blocked that is to make you less effective to, so that you cannot implement your agenda. So they're playing politics, which is the basic functioning of the U.S. government. And, you know, both sides have played that game for sure. And that's why it needed to be ended, because the government needs to function and it can't function without leadership. I think just an interesting moment that we're at the point of saying that filibuster or not, we are just in this moment of hyperpartisanship that, at least according to Reid, is not going away for a couple more election cycles. And so you just deal with the cards you've been dealt and, I guess, take an eye for an eye if need be and see where the chips land. Yeah, I think Democrats, to make the boxing analogy, feel like, you know, we've been getting... We're punching with one with one hand, you know, and the other one's like tied behind our back because we're trying to play by these norms. And I think um, Reed's saying that those days are over. Time to like play the game the way the other team's playing the game. So, so sort of closing out on a point of fact, I think I believe it was Gorsuch that was appointed to the seat, um, not not Kavanaugh, who was who was later appointed. But also, you mentioned earlier, and I cut you off, and I apologize for that. That eight states are going to have the majority of the population in that scenario. Democrats will never, ever again hold a Senate majority. So I think you would even more oppose, you know, eliminating this filibuster because it'll be incredibly likely that Republicans will hold at least 51 seats at almost all times and incredibly unlikely that Democrats would. And then I just want to end before I hear your response on that with we agree 100 percent on the staffing. Uh, presidents are elected through a, a, a process that we've been using for a long time. They have the right to staff their administration. Disagreeing with the staff they choose uh, is not a reason to oppose a nomination because obviously you disagree if you're on the other side of the aisle. But but we agree completely there. A government should be free to function and serve its purpose. And you can settle those disputes every four years. What I really worry about, Shane, with our democracy is whether it can function if uh, a vast majority of views continue to get thwarted you know, by minority. I agree with you. Like there's, there's no scenario where the Democrats, um, you know, are going to be winning, uh, a lot of these like rural states. But if you apportion power based on the size of the land versus people versus the people's views, that just seems like counter to democracy. Like at some point in a democracy, like the majority views have to be represented in, in implemented. You're right, but this is not a democracy. It never has been, right? It's a democratic republic, and it was intended to be that way. So you think that the people should be heard uniformly. My view is that the country writ large, meaning geographically, should be represented, and the people should be represented. Otherwise, you're talking about populism, which almost never ends well. The last point that I wanted to bring up is more on the policy front. Shane, you mentioned there was a story in Vice today interviewing Harry Reid where he talked about not supporting Medicare for all and decriminalizing border crossings, uh, he said, was a bad idea. So it was interesting to me that he's going to the extent of calling for an abolishment of the filibuster to support policies that he endorses, presumably Democratic policies that Republicans don't want to support, which would say that they are more progressive. I would assume that's what he's getting at. And yet he is not embracing the Democrat progressive agenda. So he's living in this middle space that I'm 
actually not quite sure what that space is. Maybe that's just because uh, the news paints these things so black and white these days. But the last thing I wanted to put to you guys was your thoughts on where Harry Reid is sitting in this political policy realm. I don't think those two views are inconsistent. I think the reason he thinks Democrats should abandon those ideas that you articulated, Medicare for all and uh, decriminalizing border and, crossing, and the Green New Deal, is I should he thinks add. that they're not supported by the majority of Americans. The flip side of that is uh, I think he thinks that the procedure should be changed so that when there is majority rule, uh, which I disagree with as I articulated, but I think he's saying when the majority holds an opinion, they shouldn't be held back by the minority. But I think he genuinely believes that those ideas are not held by the majority, which is why he thinks the Democratic primary candidates should uh, abandon them. Well, speaking of the Democratic primary candidates, let's quickly touch on the fact that CNN is having a town hall on climate change early next month. And as of right now, the climate candidate, Jay Inslee, is is not going to qualify for that discussion. And he's been the most vocal in calling for an official climate debate, one that is backed by the DNC. We don't have a DNC debate, at least as of yet. And now it looks like he won't have the polling numbers that he needs to make it to the CNN stage. So Inslee technically has one more day to lock it in. We're recording on a Tuesday. Day, but it is a long shot. Uh, quickly wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. Super bummed uh, that Jay Inslee won't be on that stage. Um, I would love to see his views, you know, represented there. Um, so uh, th- that really just sucks. I thought Senator Harris was making a huge mistake um, by not going to the the forum uh, to go to a high dollar wealthy donor fundraiser uh, in L.A. The optics of that could not be uh, worse uh, for her. So I think she made the right decision uh, to you know, change her mind. And that's another example of how activism works. You know, people were really upset and they voiced that that they voiced their opinion and she changed her mind. So public sentiment can be used to move, you know, uh, politicians uh, decisions. It's another great example. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to watch that flip-flop over the course of the day. You know, we saw the headlines this morning of, yeah, Kamala Harris not going to the CNN town hall on climate to go to this high-dollar debate, and literally right before we press record, that switched. So in the course of a day, things turned around. Uh, Shane, do you have any thoughts on the the climate debates coming up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's unfortunate that um, Governor Inslee won't be able to participate since he's the one who I, I think made this happen. I think by continually pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, And the DNC sort of rejecting it and media outlets trying to figure out how they could participate. I think he's the real driver of this discussion. So I think I don't want to use the word unfair because I know they have metrics and all that sort of stuff. I don't like the word unfair anyway. But I think it would be nice to see him on that stage and see him get the chance that he's wanted to elevate uh, that issue from his campaign's perspective On, on the Senator Harris ordeal. You know, Brandon's right that they brought her to the table through activism. I think that's great that they're able to do that on the Democratic primary side. But I don't think her showing up makes a difference at this point. The question is not what are you willing to do when forced to do it? The question is, what do you want for this country? What do you want to do and where are your priorities? And I think she demonstrated very clearly that her priorities were at high dollar fundraisers uh, in Los Angeles, even if she backed down to intense pressure. And I've never thought she was a viable candidate. I still don't. But, you know, have some conviction. If you care about this issue, then don't deny an invite to go raise money. If you don't care about it, don't pretend like you do. But but I, I just don't like when people act like they have such strong conviction about something that's really important to them. And then their actions show that they don't care. And then they get bullied into caring. Like, make up your mind. What do you stand for? What are you running for? Why are you running? And I saw an interesting article this afternoon that says... Uh, I don't think Kamala Harris knows why she's running for president. And that means voters don't either. So that's going to be a problem for her. Or the other way to look at it is Senator Harris received uh, a lot of people voiced their opinion. Uh, She thought about it 
and she realized maybe she made a mistake and she changed her mind and did the right thing. Uh, how many times have we seen Republicans like the president say, I made a mistake. I did. I did something wrong. I'm going to change it. I feel like that's a topic you guys could talk about for an hour. So I'm going to jump in now and say we've got to wrap this show and turn now to our final segment. Now is the time where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something nice about the opposing political party. So, Brandon, what do you got this week? The Republican governor of Maryland, uh, Larry Hogan, uh, recently signed an executive order that established the governor's task force on renewable energy development and siting, also using $4 million to help accelerate this. So Governor Hogan is trying to get more renewables uh, deployed in in Maryland. That's a good thing. So um, really happy about that. Awesome. Shane? So mine will be to Senator Joe Manchin. As our listeners have heard me say several times, and I know they've heard me because I I hear about it on Twitter, um, fossil fuels will be a part of our energy mix uh, for the foreseeable future and maybe beyond. I'm hoping that coal is not the driver of that, but I think natural gas is going to be good for America for a long time. Uh, Senator Manchin is introducing the EFFECT Act, and basically it's looking to reduce emissions from fossil fuel energy production, i.e., you know, carbon capture. I'm still a fan of negative carbon air capture technology. I hope we get there at some point. But uh, CCUS, carbon capture uh, use and sequestration, is uh, technically viable now. And I'm glad that someone's looking at, hey, if we're going to have natural gas, if we're going to have fossil fuel in our energy mix, let's make sure that we also do that in a way that's consistent with addressing uh, our climate challenge. So uh, hat tip to Joe Manchin. Great. All right, that is our show. Uh, Thanks to Victoria Simon, our producer, for making this show possible. Thanks to you, our listeners, for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Are we on TikTok yet? We're not on TikTok. Crap. You're dropping the ball, Julia. I know. I'll work on it. I'm just imagining you guys in TikTok videos. It's going to be great. Um, I don't know what it is, by the way. I just hear it's a thing. uh, Yeah. All right, now we've now I'm sure someone's going to call us out on having a TikTok video if we don't make this happen. So we'll we'll figure that one out for next time. Uh, in the meantime, please, if you're listening to this, we would love to hear from you in our review section. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating, leave your comments there. It really means a lot and helps other people find this show. And so with that, until next time. And donate to End Cancer. That too. We'll tweet it out. Donate there. Donate there.